You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. To the Book of Nature podcast, exploring the nature of science and the science of nature from the perspective of three Christians working in the sciences. My name is Todd Pedler, and I'm an associate professor of physics at Luther College in Decorah, Iowa, and I'll be your host for this particular broadcast. Uh, joining me today, a gorgeous sunny day here in Decorah, is my Canadian friend, Dr. Charles Hackney, professor of psychology at Briarcrest College and Seminary in Karenport, Saskatchewan. How are you doing, Charles? I'm doing pretty good. Um, the you know, Regina Fan Expo starts tomorrow, so I'm uh, excited to go geek out over sci-fi comic uh, type stuff. How cool. Yeah. How cool. And uh, got my wife back for the summer. Uh, she's, Yay! That's right. One year of Ph.D. <laughs> studies over at the University of Toronto done, uh, and now we get uh, to you know get to have her back for a little while, so... All right, three months of much rejoicing. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. All right, very, very good. Um, and you're you're close to done with classes, right? I am done with classes. Yes, submitted well, final grades, and now I'm getting to uh, uh, work on a writing project right now. Uh, all right, envy is a, a wicked, uh, <laughs> <laughs> wicked thing. My goodness, I've still got three weeks. Uh, all right. Um, well, and our, our, our third uh, host for today, a third voice you'll be hearing is from Purdue University, West Lafayette, Indiana, where he's associate uh, assistant. I, I wish, yes. <laughs> assistant professor in the Department of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences, Dr. Dan Dawson. How are you doing, sir? Uh, I'm doing okay. Also, considering the end of semester crunch, which has been kind of crazy, and proposal deadline next yeah. week also happens to be the right. last week of classes. And we have to go down to Alabama uh, to finish out this project. So lots of things going on, but uh, I'm surprisingly unanxious or whatever the <laughs> – but uh, maybe that's just – Well, you're you're not taking exams. Uh, no. You're giving them. No, thank God. But um, <laughs> uh, I do still sometimes have nightmares about that I'm in a class and I have to take an exam that I haven't been to the entire semester. And right. so I don't know why I still have those, but yeah. And to cap it off, you're not dressed. Uh, yeah, that happens sometimes. Well. <laughs> yes, I think. Well, yeah, I think that's a common <laughs> dream amongst academics. <laughs> we'll have to ask Charles about that sometime, but yeah. or maybe not. Um, so well, I'm not dressed right now. TMI. It's a good thing this is not a video podcast, I suppose. Yes. All right. Well, so today, uh, uh, listeners, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking to Dan about his background, about his present research, about uh, all things Dan Dawson. So uh, end of semester is the time to relax and, uh, and, uh, and, and do something that is a little less taxing on the brains for, for, for all of us. Uh, I've just gone through my uh, annual reporting thing with my research grant, so... Uh, I too am, am am hosed mentally, 
uh, right about now. Uh, you've uh, noticed, uh, surely, uh, those of you who are our regular listeners, that it's been a while since we've had a, a show on. Um, part of this is, is due to our, our frantic schedules. Part of this is due to the fact that uh, the Christian Humanist Radio Network has switched providers, and we had a little bit of a, uh, a hiccup there in getting shows up and, and getting them uh, out to you. But uh, that should be uh, taken care of now. And by the time you're listening to this show, uh, you'll have heard our most recent uh, broadcast on fraud. Um, uh, which was uh, which was a good discussion, and 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 uh, hope you enjoy it. Well, Dan, uh, I'd like to ask you a little bit uh, just about what it was that uh, little boy Dan Dawson uh, uh, in Indiana uh, got to thinking about as a little kid that that sort of led him down the road of of, of a career in science. Um, did it come early? Did you uh, have early mentors, have uh, people who piqued your interest? Uh, how did it all begin? Yes, uh, sure, it, it did come really early. Um, in fact, I don't remember a time when I wasn't really fascinated with science. Um, as, as long as I can remember, I was uh, playing with like uh, science kits, um, telescopes. Um, I remember I had this... Uh, um, one of those old electrical kits. I don't know if you can still buy them or not, where you can build different circuits and there's a 150 yeah, experiments. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I played with that thing all the time. I built like, you know, an AM radio, uh, transmitter and a bunch of other stuff like that. Um, and when I was really young, um, I was really fascinated with astronomy and, uh, but before I get to that, I just want to say, yes, as far as your question about mentors, I think my biggest uh, mentor um, as, as a young boy and towards all things science was my grandfather. Um, he was uh, one of those people who was, I basically cut from the same cloth of him, as him, always curious, always interested in everything, read a lot of stuff. He had a stack of National Geographic's back when National Geographic was still good, and I would read through those things voraciously, and uh, yeah, there's there's sometimes still good. I shouldn't be, but anyway, um, <laughs> it's a different. Yeah, but he works. really got me uh, into science, and my parents were not scientists, but they were always very supportive of of um, me getting into that. And uh, my dad bought me my first telescope. So um, a little bit of background so, um, about I, I didn't always live in Indiana growing up. Um, I lived there from about so fifth grade on. Before that, I sort of bounced around. I lived in Ohio for a while. Um, I also lived overseas in Saudi Arabia. Um, my father worked at McDonnell Douglas. He was an aircraft mechanic in one of the largest airports in the world, Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. And I think Riyadh's now actually the largest one as far as area-wise. But they're both in Saudi Arabia. Anyway, hmm. Um, hmm. so I lived there for quite a while. And one of my earliest memories of uh, over there was um, I think it was probably like seven or eight. Um, and my dad had bought me a telescope. And he was trying oh, when we were visiting uh, the States, visiting my fam grandparents and stuff in the States. And we moved, went going back to Saudi and he had bought me a telescope and was trying to get it through customs there and was having a heck of a time. Uh, they, the customs officers didn't want to have anything to do with this telescope because so they didn't know, what, are you going to spy with it or what? And um, But my dad said, look, this, 
to the customs officer, look, this, this is my son's new telescope, and you're going to break his heart if you don't let me bring this through here. And I'm sitting there over in there in the corner, <laughs> and the guy said, okay, you can take it. So I remember sending that sucker up and um, looking at Saturn uh, and seeing the rings for the first time, and I was just, like, so amazed by that. And so that was my first love was astronomy. But um, I started getting, I don't know, getting this um, – rhythm with the patterns of the weather just i started becoming more and more aware of things going on around me weather-wise thunderstorms um dust storms we had this three-day long dust storm once when i was over in in saudi that was just Mm. fascinating to me there's dust devils that i saw and then when we moved back to the states that just continued with that i remember listening religiously to a local uh weather uh radio station where there was a local meteorologist on there and something about his voice just captivated me uh, and uh, this is meteorologist Jim Ganahl, you know, and, and I just would listen to his forecast and started just getting fascinated with storms. And I, I guess what I didn't mention is during all during this time, I used to be just had this overwhelming fear of tornadoes, which I have no idea where it came from. Hmm. My mom says that I was in a tornado when I was young or very near one, at least with her. So I don't know if that had something to do with that. But. Needless uh, to say, I was. I, I, I think most parents uh, think that uh, their uh, children are tornadoes. So, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what well, maybe that's what you meant. It could be. Yeah, um, I know. I've always always had a messy room. Still do, but you probably yeah. watched the you probably watched the Wizard of Oz. Oh, I did, times, and so. yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up because that was one of my first encounters with like a. Vid, uh, a movie rendition of a tornado, and still to this day, it is one of the best you'll ever see. Um, it's better than the okay. ones in Twister. Better than Twister? Yes. As far as... No it, cows flying as, by? Uh, you, well, I mean... No okay. cows flying around, which they wouldn't fly quite like that. Um, <laughs> they might fly, but they wouldn't be, you know, tracing yep. the wind <laughs> like they are. They, but, but, anyway. but what's her name on the bicycle? That's uh, totally more realistic in, in Wizard of Oz. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. up until the part where they're actually in the tornado, but... <laughs> Leading up to that, it's actually very as far as like the the video of it um, and the way it's moving, and even behind it, if you look closely, you can see this mm. this clear area with downward motion, which is actually there yeah. in a lot of tornadic storms called the the rear flank downdraft. And they had that okay. in this video. I don't know if they were were aware of it. This was actually before we even understood that that was a thing in tornado science. Mm. That's how young the science of tornadoes is. But it's there in the video. It's really fascinating. Um, Interesting. So anyway, that's a little side note. But um, oh, that's cool. <laughs> yes, I remember just seeing that, being utterly fascinated and terrified in equal measure. So it's possible that that instigated nightmares, but also instigated my fascination with them. So I read everything I could about them. Um, I remember in high school, wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do early on, um, but I that was about the time the internet was really becoming a big thing. I was like 93 to 95. And mm-hmm. I remember the 90, 1995 hurricane season being very active until 2005 blew sure. it out of the water. No pun intended. Right. Um, and I could track these hurricanes from the satellite images on these websites. And I was like, this is cool. And then I, at the same time, I started realizing there was all this really interesting science behind weather and the dynamics and the math behind it. And I said, I, I want to do this. I, I, it wasn't that exact moment that I decided that. I think it was just one of the many steps in there. But 
um, it was definitely a big th- player in that. And I, I just want to do this for a mm-hmm. career. And I knew that I wanted to study it from a scientific perspective and not be a, you know, operational forecaster. Um, sure. And so that's sort of how that went. Um, so I went, mm. graduated from high school in Indiana, uh, and I applied for the program at Purdue, which is just about an hour away. And yeah, mm-hmm. so, but yeah, that's that's sort of a, the the basic childhood background there. Sure. Hmm. What? Um, so when you when you applied, you I mean you were immediately. I mean, this is what you were going to do, right? I mean, it wasn't like you entered and said, you know, you were you were generally interested in science. You went right for it, right? Yes, away. absolutely. Um, and okay. in fact, the the curriculum they had there at the time was a pretty uh, gentle introduction to the subject. I couldn't wait to take the classes in it, so I actually was able to uh, to get them to allow me to take a lot of the. Uh, higher level meteorology classes one or two years early um, during the curriculum. So I just took as many classes as I could um, and really enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, I had very good professors there, some of whom are still there and are now my colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, so, yes, I, I had no doubt that's what I wanted to do, and I wanted to move on to mm-hmm. grad school after that. And, uh yeah, I not. I mean, I understand that that's not always the case with a lot of people. So, but for me, it sure. certainly was. Mm-hmm. And um, so, this is two thousand two. That's when I graduated from. Yeah, when you graduated with, with BS, BS. And, and 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 you went where all good meteorologists go, um, right? <laughs> <laughs> we won't say that because some of them go to Purdue. Yes. At least the new, at least the severe weather folks go. Yeah, yeah. right. Right, but got to go to Mecca. Yes, the uh, the severe yeah. weather Mecca, <laughs> University of Oklahoma, right? Of course. Yeah, of course. And uh, it's where the wind goes sweeping down the plain. Indeed, and the waving wheat can uh, smell so sweet. Yes. Sweet, yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so I went there. Um, a couple reasons. Um, one is it is one of the best schools um, for. St- studying uh, severe weather. Um, it's probably, I, not 100% certain of this, but I think it's the biggest um, school of meteorology period um, in the world um, as far as the size of the, you know, the number of faculty and the number of students they put through there. So it's certainly not just for severe weather, obviously. It's a full-blown meteorology program, lots of great stuff going on there that has nothing to do with tornadoes. But there is a lot that is going on there that has to do with tornadoes. There's the National Severe Storms Lab, um, there's the Storm Prediction Center, which, by the way, whenever you see one of those tornado or severe thunderstorm watches, if you are in the United States, that's who issues those. That this, They're headquartered in uh, mm-hmm. Norman, Oklahoma. Now, instead, when you get the little warnings, the tornado warning or severe thunderstorm warning, which is a smaller scale, um, those are issued by your local weather service office, wherever that happens to be. But anyway... Um, so I went there, and I, it was this amazing experience because I could interact with all these different uh, people working both in operational meteorology forecasting and in research. Uh, it was a very good uh, intellectually stimulating experience. Um, I went on to uh, do a couple postdocs. I did a postdoc at the National Severe Storms Lab um, and also kept uh, did a 
uh, went on as a research scientist in the uh, at the Center for Analysis and Prediction of Storms, which, if you've been listening to the podcast, that's where I was when we first started this, um, and uh, did a heck of a lot of storm chasing. Um, a lot of people go out there, and they'll go chase storms once or twice because it's, you know, they got to do it at least once or twice, get it out of their system, right? And then they don't do it anymore. <laughs> but there are certain people like me and a lot of other people who are study tornadoes scientifically that they just get this, this, uh, they get hooked, they get this bug and mm-hmm. they become, and it just, it's like, um, one of the things that they were meant to do, you know, and that's certainly mm-hmm. the case for me. It's, uh, and I, one of the things about moving back out here to, uh, Indiana is that I won't be able to do that quite as much, but I'm making sure that, that I still keep that as part of my life because it is a very important part of it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I got something that it's sort of a related question, I guess, just thinking about where, where you've been and where we are now. Um, sure. When, what would you say, you know, is I mean, this is now 14 years ago is when you entered the program at Oklahoma. Um, how different is it today? I mean, in terms of the things that you do, the things that are understood, the techniques that you might use um, to study severe storms. Oh, yeah. I mean, wh- how, how much has happened? Oh, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, to give a really good answer, I'd have to think a lot more about it, but um, but. Yeah. My initial impression is a lot has changed. I mean, this is a very evolving field. Uh, new uh, ideas and uh, perspectives and techniques are coming out all the time. The basic um, structure is the same. Um, so, f- let's see. For When it comes to, for example, when it comes to predicting storms, like numerical modeling, that has advanced by mm-hmm. leaps and bounds even since I started as a uh, grad mm-hmm. student where just we have more computing power to be able to more routinely run uh, forecasts on computers that actually have explicitly simulate individual thunderstorms. And now we use those routinely um, in forecasting severe weather, where when I first started, they were just coming on the scene. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's one thing. Now, as far as like scientific understanding, there's been more uh, progress made. uh, A couple of the field programs I've been involved in um, Vortex 2 and now Vortex Southeast. One of the things that came out of Vortex 2 was some greater uh, uh, realization that there's a lot more complicated things going on in the what's called the rear flank downdraft of the storm than what had heretofore been appreciated. I mean, it's been seen before. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's absolutely 100% new, but we're starting to realize that this may be more important than it may be more mm-hmm. key to tornado development than. Uh, what we had thought before. And when I say we, I say we as a general in the field. Um, mm-hmm. uh, lots of new techniques for, for example, simulating the, the physics of uh, precipitation in storms have come out, um, which turns out to be very important. That's an area that I work with a lot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just general capabilities have just increased across the board, um, both for ability to detect uh, weather and analyze weather and for ability to predict it and for scientific understanding. So meteorology in general is a fairly young science as far as mm-hmm. the modern, ver- uh, modern version of it goes, you know, about 100 or so years old. Um, uh, really, uh, really uh, systematic research on tornadoes and storms is, you know, m- maybe 50 or so years old where, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there was some 
scientists back even in the turn of the last century, that uh, the the 20th century, not the 21st, um, that were working right. on it. But really, it didn't start to really get going until the 50s or 60s. So it's relatively right. new, and so there's a lot of stuff happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that just fascinates me about I- any modern in- scientific endeavor is how a relatively short time, you know, of, of less than a person's lifetime, how immense changes can be. Yeah. I mean, you talk about the changes since 2000 being being significant, but then you just threw in sort of casually 50 years. Yeah. And you think, go back 50 years. I mean, we're now in the, in the mid-60s. Yep. Um, and, and I'm trying to imagine what, uh, you know, somebody in, in those days um, who – you know, not even ha- not having anything compared to to uh, what we have today in terms of computational abilities, in terms of radar abilities. Right. You know, somebody in the upper Midwest or trying satellite. to figure out what's going on in 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 you know in West yeah. Texas. Um, you don't. It's just it's unimaginably different. It seems to me. Yeah, I mean, a good um, example of that yeah. of how that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like uh, tornadoes back in those times routinely would kill over 100 people apiece, um, and that rarely happens anymore. In fact, we went Mm -hmm. for a long streak since, I think, the 70s where we had no tornado killing over 100 people, and and then unfortunately that streak was broken in 2011 with the Joplin, uh, Missouri tornado. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in general, our... That's because we have these this network of radars. We have this network of satellites. Mm-hmm. We have computer models. Yeah, back in the fifties and sixties, we we didn't have any of that. I mean, I think the first weather satellite was. I, I wish I could remember that it was. I think it was like called Tyros, um, and that was mm-hmm. maybe I think early sixties. I want to say it's got to be sixty-two yeah, or three. Uh, or something and like that. yeah, it was that was a big mm-hmm. deal at the time, where we could see the weather for the first time from space like that, mm-hmm. and. Yeah. And uh, this was long before – and that was about the time also that radar technology was beginning to be used for the weather um, came in, coming out of World War II uh, technology, which a lot mm-hmm. of the technology we use today still has its roots in World War II. Even the quote-unquote right. new technology, the, the phased array radar, that yeah. that is actually pretty old. I don't know if that was used in World War II, but um, it, it's, it's mm-hmm. definitely been – has a longer pedigree in the military applications than it does in weather. But – um, yeah. Yes, it's just the explosion of things just over the past 50 years um, where we went where we barely understood how thunderstorms worked. And, um, we had this big tornado or thunderstorm project in the 40s to study the life cycles of thunderstorms to mm-hmm. now being able to um, predict uh, their motion, at least to some degree, out you know an hour or two um, and understanding all kinds of details about uh, the air motion and the precipitation physics in them. So it's... It's extraordinary. And you mentioned computing resources. That's also mm-hmm. been a huge driver. I mean, uh, one of the first, uh, quote-unquote, supercomputers, the ENIAC machine, um, one of the, its first applications was actually weather prediction. It used a very simple weather model um, mm-hmm. and ran it on that. Uh, there was a um, meteorologist uh, back in the 20s, uh, L.F. Richardson, who uh, he was a he was an ambulance driver in World War One, conscientious objector and a meteorologist, and he actually came up with the concept of numerical weather prediction of how you would go about mm-hmm. doing this. 
breaking these equations in discrete chunks, breaking the atmosphere in discrete chunks, solving the equations for each of these grid points, shuffling all the data around, and predicting the weather out in the future numerically. Unfortunately, of course, this is long before computers, so he actually envisioned this giant amphitheater with lots of people sitting around um, furiously calculating <laughs> um, the, these quantities and then passing the results to their neighbor um, because, to, so because each person would be working on a different part of the atmosphere, and they need to, the one part needs to know about what the other part's doing so they can pass information. And it's funny because you know what he envisioned was exactly how supercomputers do that now. We have all these different right. processor cores, and they are communicating with each other. Each one is assigned a chunk of the of the discretized atmosphere, and they communicate mm. with their, the other processors to tell them. And, and everything's being done in massively parallel. So he's well ahead of his mm-hmm. time. Um, but when <laughs> when that uh, when the computers finally started coming out to do this, that's really when a lot of our ability to forecast really exploded. Mm. The numerical modeling is I, – I don't think it's – I think it's safe to say that it's the backbone of modern weather forecasting. So, yeah. Right. Anyway, yeah right. I digress. No, that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, no, well, the digressions are, are yes. allowed on uh, particularly this particular podcast. Uh, it's um, – that's interesting because, you know, the, the early calculations at Los Alamos were done very much that way mm-hmm. too with basically mechanical calculations and you know hundreds of secretaries i mean this is this is kind of the uh, the model and it's a john von neumann uh strategy uh right. of, of a basic computer who also did some work um, in meteorology actually he has a he's quite the mm-hmm. interesting uh uh diverse uh and scientific uh, fellow there john yeah oh yeah oh yeah huh well, you mentioned vortex a couple of times um I mean, this is this is your current work um just uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of you know the 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 history where did it where did it begin I mean it began with you your your participation began with Vortex Two as you say um, so what was Vortex Two all about and what's uh, what's your current business Okay yeah um, first uh, before talking about Vortex Two I guess we should talk about Vortex sure. One um, sure. so that was a uh, one of the first uh, systematic uh, large scale field programs to study tornadoes and the storms that produced them. It took place um, in the mid-90s, I think 94 and 95 were the two years. Um, and they, there was a, basically they, a fleet of uh, what, what are called mobile mesonet vehicles. So those are vehicles like uh, uh, vans or trucks that have uh, weather instruments. And you drive up to the storm and position these vehicles around the storm and p- sometimes move along with the storm, collect uh, continuous data in various areas around the storm to get a better idea of the, the airflow and the, the thermodynamics of things, at least at the surface near the storm. We also had uh, radar um, mounted on airplanes and, uh, of course, the fixed site radars. Uh, and a lot of instruments and uh, ingenuity uh, brought to bear on this problem and learned a lot uh, during that project. Um, I was still in high school at the time, so I was not a participant. But um, I, of course, learned about it later and and studied up on the uh, results that came out of that program. Um, one of the things that one of the big things that came out of that field program was this. I um, going into it, I'm simplifying things a lot here. So if any of my meteorologist colleagues are listening, he's like, "That's not right." Yeah, then yeah, please, uh, yep. please forgive <laughs> me. Okay. Um, but uh, one of the things going into um, the Project Vortex was 
this hypothesis that um, tornadic thunderstorms. So the tornadic storms tend to be uh, what are called supercell storms. The, the, the entire storm, the updraft, rotates. They're the ones that you see on the radar images that have hook echoes. Um, and uh, one of the hypotheses was that that you ought to be able to see a difference in the uh, the uh, larger scale rotation of these storms, the me- what's called the mesocyclone, which is on the order of a uh, uh, five to ten kilometers wide, um, much w- longer wider than a typical tornado. Um, you ought to be able to see differences in the strength of these mesocyclones and also how low to the ground they are between those that produce tornadoes and those that don't. Um, and one and the hypothesis was that that tornadic supercells ought to have a strong low-level mesocyclone in the lowest few kilometers. Um, and what we discovered from Project Vortex was that that's actually not, doesn't appear to be the case. Um, at least not, it's not that simple. There, there are plenty of tornadic uh, uh, supercells that have strong low-level mesocyclones, but there's also plenty of non-tornadic ones that do as well. And they, they don't go on to produce a tornado despite having very strong rotation at the scale of the mesocyclone. And so that was a big kind of deal. It's like, well, wow, this is, this is more complicated than we thought. Um, so Vortex 2 was one of the programs that was pitched to the NSF. A consortium of uh, researchers in the field got together to try to plan it out over many years uh, to try to address some of these follow-up questions that, uh, that, were at, that came up from the results of Project Vortex. Now, I should say that the Vortex uh, stands for the Verification of the Origin of Rotation in Tornadoes Experiment. So, actually quite catchy uh, and miles much better than what the original program was going to be called, which was TFE, Tornado Field Experiment. (laughs) So, thank goodness that somebody came up with Vortex because it's just so much cooler and it captures the public imagination and everything. So, anyway, Hmm. uh, Vortex 2... finally got the green light for 2009-2010 and we were wanting to look at some of the uh some of these questions that came up it's like can we uh sort of distinguish environments of storms that produce tornadoes and those that don't can we distinguish details about the storm structure um that between storms that produce tornadoes and those that don't um can we simulate these um can we predict them better and a whole host of questions along those lines one of the things that i was involved in was putting these probes with these uh these things called distrometers that measure raindrop sizes in the and one of the questions that has come up is how important is the raindrop sizes in these storms to how cold the outflow in the in the storm is so what we think is going on um and this was known or to be at least li- a likely uh, instigator for tornado genesis even before the original Project Vortex, is that the, a downdraft is required, in the, particularly in the rear flank of the storm, but also in the middle of the storm, to uh, produce a tornado um, because you need to have a way of getting the rotation that's up in mm-hmm. the, aloft in the storm. You need to have a, find, have a way to get that down the surface. Um, at mm-hmm. least in the absence of any pre-existing rotation at the surface, um, you need a downdraft to be able to, to transport that down somehow. And hmm. how those downdrafts form in the storm is still um, poorly understood. Um, some storms have very warm downdrafts. Some have cold ones. 
We think that the uh, sizes distribution of the rain plays a role in that because if you have a bunch of small drops, they'll evaporate more effectively and you'll get colder outflow, whereas if you have a f- relatively fewer larger drops, they don't evaporate as, as, as effectively because of the lower surface mm-hmm. area to volume uh, ratio. And, um, and that may play a role in whether the, the outflow is too cold for a tornado to form because from, what, from uh, our field programs, we've consistently seen that storms that go on to produce tornadoes tend to have warmer outflow. So I threw a lot of that out there, but that's one, a lot of the things we were studying there in Vortex 2 was are there differences in the outflow thermodynamics of these storms? Are there differences in the size, rain size distributions? Um, what other things are going on that we, we don't know about? So, hmm. so that was one of the things that I worked with. Um, so I would go out and place these probes. We had two of them. I worked with a, a colleague from the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder on this. We'd place them out, let the storm move over them, hope to get catch it near the time it's producing a tornado, go back, pick them up, rinse and repeat. And we, we were, hmm. you know, somewhat successful, but um, it could have been better. <laughs> we didn't get as many good mm-hmm. storms as we had hoped those two years. But hmm. uh, I suppose it's hard to get you – know, I mean, what you would ideally do, I suppose, would be to have a you know grid of a thousand of these things covering the area where you know a storm oh, absolutely, is, is, yeah. is likely to produce. Yeah. So, um, so it is kind of just throw them out there and, and hope hope they're well well placed. yeah and and we we okay so yeah i guess i kind of skipped ahead a little bit i to give a little bit more background so vortex 2 was um we were was designed around the idea that everybody all the different assets so we had multiple mobile radar um mobile mobile radars we had multiple uh, mesonets i drove one of them it's a van with the, the instruments on it and we had other people with other in, probes that they would place in the path of storms and tornadoes. So our probes weren't designed to be hit by tornadoes, even though one of them actually was hit by a tornado. But I can get to that story later. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, they were designed to get into the, the, the precipitation region just north of the track of the tornado. And mm-hmm. so the, we could, the idea was on a typical day um, during Vortex 2, we would all wake up. We would have a meeting in the morning. So we're talking like a hundred something investigators and dozens of vehicles. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would we would say, okay, what's our target today? So our general target area would be maybe about the size of a of a, a state or half a state or so, where we think the conditions mm-hmm. are going to be the best for for storm and tornado formation. We'd head out that way. Then when storms started to form, we would pick a storm that looked promising. And all of us would focus on that storm. So we'd figure out its motion, where it's going, drive out and get out ahead of it, place our radars in the right spot so we can get maximum coverage over the storm. So that helps solve a part of the problem that you were referring to um, Mm -hmm. in that we don't necessarily have to have all these instruments being these in situ instruments. We can have the radar sweeping through it and get remote sensing, which is much more efficient. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, radar doesn't record things like temperature and pressure it records the 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 power return from the radar beam Mm -hmm. and so Mm -hmm. we have to find ways of figuring out what the other variables that we're interested in are um but that's a whole other area anyway um Mm -hmm. uh so then what what i would do is i would with my colleague who actually was running this so i kind of hitched my wagon to his project um at the time we would drive 
out there and get in front of the storm with about half an hour or so lead time before the storm got to us. So we could see it. So we're essentially mm-hmm. storm chasing. We put the probe mm-hmm. out there, switch it on. Then we would drive back and forth between two of the probes that would maybe position a few kilometers apart and collect data. And then what, as the storm passed by, waited till it passed us. Then we'd go pick up the probes, try to get out ahead of it, and do it again. So we did have some control over where we were placing it. It wasn't just a shot in the dark. Um, now, that, that's been more the case with Vortex Southeast, but, <laughs> but mm-hmm. that, that's, that was a basic mm-hmm. idea. So, so, so the 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 basic plot device in in Twister wasn't all that. Wrong. No, uh, I mean, I mean, in general, they had, I mean, they, they dramatized a lot of stuff, and they sure. they had a lot of uh, really unrealistic portrayals of how <laughs> you would be actually chasing storms, and that you could just happen upon one without paying attention, kind right. of thing, and that right. there would be dozens of tornadoes you could just drive up to, and you hear about it on the radio, and just go over there and find it. It's not quite like mm-hmm. that. You have to do a lot more planning. But in general, the idea of having these probes and, and trying to get collect data, that's a, that's a real idea and has been done. Not that sure. particular kind of probe where you have all these instruments flying up in the tornado, but, but, right, right. but the basic idea is actually some of the, some of the groups do that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so Charles has been quiet. I've been listening. <laughs> Listening true, yes. and learning. I'm a blabbermouth. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, well, I've been the blabbermouth. You get me started on this stuff. <laughs> That's stop. right. It's yeah. your show. <laughs> <clears throat> cool. So uh, upcoming uh, upcoming things. So basically Vortex Southeast is, a, is an extension of, of Yes, it's, it's a little bit different in that – the Vortex, the original project Vortex and Vortex 2 were both sort of organic um, uh, projects sort of instigated by um, a lot of different investigators talking about what we would like to do, and and then we have to pitch this to the funding agencies. Vortex Southeast has been a little bit different. Um, there, there's certainly a lot of investigators who are inter- have been doing field programs down there. In fact, where the host institution... Uh, University of Alabama Huntsville has been doing a lot of good work down there with tornadoes in that part of the country for a while now. Um, but um, in, for this particular project, this was partly in response to some of the recent big outbreaks they've had down in uh, the southeast, um, particularly the April 27, 2011 outbreak, um, which produced multiple long-track violent tornadoes uh, near the cities of you know Tuscaloosa, Birmingham, uh, Huntsville and a, and a few other places. Major tornado outbreak down there, um, one of the biggest in history in, in the entire country. Um, and uh, so that got some, uh, and I don't know all the details of this. So um, again, listeners, forgive me if, if you know more details and I'm getting this wrong. But my basic understanding is that this, there was some congressmen down there who decided that this was something that they wanted to, to have uh, fund it to have a field program down there. So they, they, they mandated that in their budget a couple of years ago. And that was given to NOAA, and NOAA took it and, and sought out some uh, investigators in the storm community to um, head it up. And the rest is sort of history, as it were, is that we got that together. We had our first, we're actually in the middle of the first field program right now. I'm one of the 
uh, Purdue is one of the participating institutions, so we had a funding competition. Our our proposal was one of the ones accepted. And we've just been out there coordinating with other teams, many of whom were veterans of, of both Vortex and Vortex 2 and other field programs. So we, But we're doing it down there in the southeast, which is a lot more difficult to chase in. There's a lot more hills and trees. So re- what we're doing is more of a targeted um, limited area experiment where we're focusing on a small area in northern Alabama and southern Tennessee where we set up some assets that are fixed site, which we don't move around, and others which we can move around, like my mobile distrometer probes. But it's not as nimble as, say, Vortex 2, where we can just go wherever the storms are. We, we're a little bit more constrained by topography and by the domain and by the fixed radar sites. So it's a, it's a smaller, more focused um, field program. But I'd say that despite some of the difficulties, we've actually been, um, I think, doing much better than even – I was thinking we would as far as some of the recent uh, events that we've had. Um, we, The last month or so has been completely dead as far as storms have been concerned down there, so we haven't been able to. But it looks like next week they might come back, and most of the funded teams have a couple more funded uh, field uh, funding for a couple more field outings. So we're going to try to close out this year's program on a high note next week. And we're also con- we're also all uh, – competing for a further round of funding for next year. And beyond that, I, who knows if it's going to continue. Well, let's hope that it does. Yeah, I mean, it sounds I, like I good stuff. Interesting. A lot of, a lot of uh, folks, myself included, were somewhat skeptical about our ability to, well, to A, collect uh, high-quality data on, on storms down there because of the inherent logistical difficulties doing so, and B, um, uh, whether or not there was enough of a scientific uh, motivation to do so are the storms down there really that much different from those in the plains and I think everybody agrees that they're not as far as the physics are concerned but the environments that they're forming in down there and some of the other influences like terrain influences may be different and so um, uh, I've been sort of come around to the idea that it is definitely something worthwhile to continue and if not continuing down the southeast uh, even other parts of the country or take what we've learned from down there and bring it back to the plains where you have a little bit more uh, room to breathe, so to speak, for actually collecting the data. So it's, it's been a good experience um, overall, and I'm hoping we get to we, our, our proposal is uh, accepted for funding uh, next year as well. So Sounds good. Uh, how, would, uh, how, how would you see the, uh, the work that you're doing interacting with uh, the way that, uh, that you teach? Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, It's really good that you asked that because what we've done actually with this field program is we've uh, we set up an undergraduate uh, fieldwork class this semester. We had six students uh, uh, sign up for it. And the and the class is basically them coming down and participating in the field program with us. And uh, we, we'd only have room to take three at a time, but we alternate the different, uh, what we have, what we call intensive observing, observing per, uh, periods, which are basically what we'll do is we'll look at the forecast for the coming week or so, see if there's a good chance of storms down in Alabama. This will be decided amongst all the PIs from the different institutions that are working on this project. Have this uh, big go-to meeting about it. Um, and say, okay, yeah, we're going to pull the trigger. We're going to go down and operate on this day because it looks like there's going to be storms coming through there. Then we would tell our students, okay, we're going to do this. Who's available? 
make sure everybody gets a chance to go at least once, and then we all drive down there with our with our with our vehicles. We have a radar uh, truck from the University of Massachusetts. This is our collaboration, Purdue and the University of Massachusetts, and we also have uh, four of these distrometer probes that I've collaborating with uh, OU and NSSL with. And so we drive down there with the students, and they get to participate, and they're actually been integ- in- integral, is that how you say it? Integral to this process. Um, they, I, I essentially don't think we could have done it without them. They've been really great, and they, it's a great learning experience for them. Uh, to actually get some time out in the field and see how a real scientific research program, at least in meteorology, is done. And um, I haven't got the evaluations back, but at least informally they've all told me that, that, that it's just been great for them. And these are the kinds of things that I really didn't have access to as an undergrad. We really didn't do much of that when I was an undergraduate, and I kind of wish we did um, because you know just being able to have that experience I've, I've seen people who've had that. That's what turned their career around is what they just made them decide they wanted to stick with a research career in science and meteorology and stuff. So I'm a, I, for one, am really excited about being able to bring students out there. So. Right. Well, that sounds like a great opportunity. <coughs> um, do you find that, uh, that most of your students uh, primarily get interested in uh, atmospheric sciences because of the you know, big dramatic stuff like uh, storms and tornadoes? Yes, I think that a lot of them do. Um, there's a common refrain amongst uh, uh, um, meteorologists, um, at least those that, that I've encountered, and particularly in the severe storms community, um, where some big event, weather event, that they experienced as a child or, or something along those lines is what made them decide, hey, I want to study this, I want to do this. Um, and I think also there's just this inherent drive that sort of mixes with that, that, that some people have just a passion for, you know, curiosity about science in general, mixed with an event like that, that that gets them on the track to become a meteorologist. I hear this kind of thing over and over and over again. There's got to be something to it. Not everyone in meteorology is, is like that. A lot of them do come in just being interested in science and find the problems in meteorology compelling and interesting and difficult and challenging and so they get to it from that route and don't have any particular you know personal fascination or affinity with you know actually experiencing weather events or or, you know going storm chasing or things like that so there are some like that but a lot a lot of them are are like i said the first so um i I don't know what the percentages are but it seems like a good deal of them Yeah, this is going to be a completely random question here. <coughs> um, have you done any um, any collaborations with the Northeast Climate Science Center uh, in uh, Madison, Wisconsin? Ah, uh, I have to think about Northeast Climate Science Center. No. Oh, okay. Oh, no, no, there's an atmospheric scientist there uh, that I shared an apartment with in New York. Oh, okay. So. Cool. Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I mean, our field is kind of small, so there was a better than, you know, a better chance than you might have thought that I might that I would have known something okay. about it, but I, I just don't for that. Yeah, his name's but. Michael Notaro. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know him. Anyway. Well, looking at the time, I think uh, we're going to start heading in the direction of uh, wrapping it up. Holy cow. That's right. <laughs> it's 45 minutes. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, uh, any last... Um, uh, any last thoughts, any words of wisdom or encouragement for uh, listeners who uh, are, are thinking about going into this field? Okay, well, um, I, yeah, I, have, I, I can say a few things about it. Uh, one is going to start starting from the general science angle, and then I'll kind of funnel down to meteorology and, and, and then down to s severe storms. So in general, for science, I think that the biggest thing is to keep your curiosity alive. Um, I, I mean, children in general tend to have or have a high curiosity streak to them, and it's so easy for that to sort of get drummed out of us by life as we grow up. Um, and I think that in order, if you really want to get into this field uh, or any field of science, you need to keep that alive and don't be ashamed of it um, and don't let, you know, uh, circumstances beat that down because that's how you'll be happy i think in, in a scientific field um really get um uh uh shored up on mathematics i can't stress that enough math is very important um it doesn't come naturally to everyone i mean i myself um i i i'm good at math i'm proficient in math um but it's not um necessarily the thing that it doesn't get me excited what gets me excited is the physical processes that the mathematics describe and that's how i get the math so um focus on that um focus on um the actual physics that's happening now if you're going into meteorology i think one of my old professors said it best never lose your love for the weather um you know, I think it's real. I think it's really important to have that connection, physical connection, with the thing that you're studying. Um, for most people, not everyone. Some people I know who are amazing meteorologists who just don't really care actually that much about the actual experience of the weather, and that's okay. That I mean, there's. I'm not trying to make a blanket statement here, but for most of us, I think. And I even think they could benefit from getting that. And so one of the things that I did as a grad student, and I still do, is I would take a lot of my colleagues out um, who who worked in severe storms with me, storm chasing. So a lot of them would never go, not necessarily because they didn't want to, but because they didn't know who to ask and they didn't know anything about it. Um, and so I would take them along. And without fail, every one of them has come back to me and said, you know, I get stuff better now. I understand what things I'm studying now. I, I have a better appreciation for them. Uh, so I think that's a big thing. Is And speaking of that, if you're going to go storm chasing, go with somebody who has done it before um, and who can kind of show you the ropes. There's a lot of folks out there now um, who, uh, who, shall we say, are not as not as um, I'm trying to say this diplomatically. Oh, go ahead, say safety it diplomatically. Well, I got to be careful because storm chasing is is awesome, and there's a it's a very there's a large cross section of people that do it, and not everybody who's I'm not saying certainly not saying that everybody who chases who is not a scientist is. That's that they shouldn't do that. I, I, far from it. In fact, some of the best storm chasers I know are not trained meteorologists, um, but they I, they are be, they are better at storm chasing and more ha safety conscious. In some ways, know more about storms than some of the uh, scientists who study these things that aren't storm chasers. 
that I know. So there's a place for all of that. But what I am saying is that, um, you know, it's it's good to get some somebody who's has more experience under their belt to help you out to 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 help teach you how to do it. Especially with so many more people out on the road, and there's a lot of dangerous uh, behavior out there, um, uh, clogged roads, things like that. Um, but I certainly think that it's worthwhile, um, and if if it's something that you want to do, you're going to do it anyway. So. Um, and uh, for for both a uh, enrichment of of your um, your your science and and as a um, just sort of a enrichment of your life, I mean, I guess one way I like to put it is and uh, um, is that it's it's like visiting a national park, right? Except the national park is out in the middle of nowhere and it's moving at thirty miles an hour and it's there for only a couple hours. So. Uh, it, there's there's danger involved with any national park. It's raw nature, and there and there's always uh, risk there. But it's also where you can actually get the experience of that that you can't get anywhere else. Hmm. So, cool. I hope that answers your question. Uh, yep. <laughs> yep. Oh sure. Yeah. No. It's. Uh, I I I think uh, I'll speak for. Well, myself only here, but I mean, I, I appreciate hearing uh, a little bit more about the things you've been up to, and um, certainly gives us a gives our listeners uh, a, a deeper insight, a better insight into into who you are and what drives you, and 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 where you'll be uh, where you'll be headed. So uh, that's good. Great. Well, thanks. Next time, yeah, huh? it was a lot of fun. Oh yeah, appreciate. It. Next time you're doing this uh, this this gig though, and uh, Charles right. is on the hot seat, I gather. <laughs> it's all about me. So yep. we'll uh... <laughs> only for one. Do I get show. to? So is this going to be a psycho an anal, an, anal, uh, uh, psychoanalysis? That's right. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I got to think about it. So. No. Well, how, how do I'll you? Be feel nice. All right. <clears throat> Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's right. How do you feel about storm chasing? Oh, goodness gracious <laughs> me. Yeah. Well, uh, dear listeners, thank you for uh, for downloading this uh, podcast. This has been another episode of The Book of Nature, a member podcast of the Christian Re- uh, Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our intern is Sway Jimenez. Check us out, please, on Facebook, where you can like and follow us. And at the Christian Humanist blog, please also check out the Christian Humanist Radio Network's other podcasts. There are many, all of which may be found via links at the Christian Humanist blog. And you can subscribe to all of these via iTunes, Stitcher, or other good apps that bring the podcast world to your doorstep. So thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. On behalf of Charles Hackney and Dan Dawson, this is Todd Pedler saying thank you for listening and tune in next time. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.